0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick.
1: The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical.
0: Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Faiting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Sucsonize and do their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. to grab a shovel and There are a few topics that we regularly cover on TechTrad that are familiar to most readers, uh, often focusing on how technology works, including sometimes how technology doesn't work out quite the way it should. (laughs) We also spend lots of time talking about civil liberties. Uh, Another popular related topic to this is about the police and frequently stories about police, well... Doing bad things, I think, would be the uh, easy way to summarize it. Now, some people have questioned why we talk so much about the police uh, on a site about technology, uh, but so often the stories about police cross over into those other areas of focus, uh, including both technology and civil liberties. Uh, Tragically, uh, with most of those stories being about uh, violations of people's civil liberties. Uh, On the tech side, we've had uh, lots of stories about police using or potentially abusing certain technologies from tasers to facial recognition to Stingray devices and more, uh, investigative reporter Matt Stroud uh, has just released an excellent new book entitled The Thin Blue Lie that really ties together a whole bunch of stories about the obsession of high-tech policing and how law enforcement regularly runs to embrace new technologies, even though it rarely leads to the outcomes that they predict. Uh, the book is extraordinarily extraordinarily well-written uh, and an excellent read with uh, really engaging, if sometimes frustrating or infuriating stories. Uh, but the core message that becomes quite clear throughout the book is that law enforcement, and uh, often politicians as well, run towards tech solutions to really systematic problems in how law enforcement works. And that is, rather than facing the deeper issues as to why police keep killing people they shouldn't kill or interacting with communities in ways that keep leading to eruptions and violence, Uh, police just seem to keep trying to apply some new technological Band-Aid And it never seems to actually work. Indeed, it often makes the problems much, much worse. Uh, While I write about these issues uh, sometimes, uh, Tim Cushing tends to be even more focused on these issues uh, and the police beat on Tech Dirt. So I've asked Tim to join us today, along with the author of The Thin Blue Lie, uh, Matt Stroud. Welcome, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So there have been a few other books Written about the problem with law enforcement these days, what made you focus on the technology issue and with this?
1: Uh, I've had an interest in technology and policing for a while, uh, and I actually I was on staff at at Bloomberg um, and on staff at, at the Verge, and in both of those roles. Uh, I ended up covering pretty closely Taser International, the company that produces mm-hmm. tasers uh, and then body cameras. And I um, became fascinated by the idea that such a company, which was publicly traded, um, was able to make so much money off of selling <laughs> this equipment um, and addressing you know some of the huge issues that surround policing you know such as police killings um and i wanted to write a story about that and you know look at the police industrial complex and who it benefits
0: yeah and i think a lot of the book you know a significant portion of the book definitely focuses on taser and its history um uh, much of which i had no idea about before reading the book and it was Uh, a little bit different than I expected. (laughs) Do do you want to give a little bit of background? I I mean, don't give away the book, but some of the background of TASER and International and how it came about.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating story. Um, There was this guy named Jack Cover, um, who, Air Force veteran, uh, had been a business executive for most of his career. And then when he was an executive with Hughes Aircraft in the 1960s, um, he followed the news of Watts pretty closely, the Watts riots in 1965. Um, And, you know, he was a a tinkering inventor uh, for most of his life. And he decided that he was going to try to come up with a non-lethal weapon. And he literally started, you know, putting um, copper wires together and pieces of plastic in his garage, trying to create uh, a device that would, I mean, the idea that he, the idea was that he was going to shoot an electric fence out of a gun that was the that was the concept and he came up with it in his garage um, quit his job at Hughes Aircraft and then proceeded to spend 10 or 15 years failing to sell this device to civilians or to police Um, and uh, you know there is some interesting history that happens there with him trying to sell this device um and he ultimately fails in a lot of ways the the taser finds its way into police departments most prominently the los angeles police department Um, but it really doesn't become a household name until these two brothers from scottsdale arizona the smiths rick and tom smith um, one of whom has an mba from harvard um, or an mba from university of chicago undergrad from harvard um, really takes up the cause and turns it into a going concern, brings it public, and next thing you know, uh, these devices that Jack Cover invented are in every police department in the country.
0: Yeah, it, it really took me by surprise because, you know, in my head, I just thought Taser had been around for all this time. I didn't realize kind of how recent it was, and, and even that, um, you know, there were sort of two different competing companies uh, that, you know, one had really failed for a really long time. And the other one came along and was much more of a success. And then they got into a legal fight. It was kind of an amazing story all around, uh, in- including the way that those two companies approached selling the device, right? They took a very different approach to it.
1: Uh, yeah, there were, there were several companies. So there were two main ones that ended up competing in the late nineties and the early two thousands. One was run by a lawyer in uh, Newport Beach, California, named Barry Resnick. He had a company called Tasertron uh, and then Taser International, which was the company that the Smiths created. There was also uh, this company called Nova that in the 1980s uh, took the Taser design that Jack Cover had put together and then took away one very particular component of it, which was the, the Taser's ability to shoot uh, a distance. So, you know, Jack Cover's design uses. Uh, copper wires to shoot, you know, 15, 20 feet so that a police officer can stand that far away and still engage a suspect. The Nova company decided that they were going to take away that ability to shoot 15 or 20 feet and turn it into something that the police officer actually had to touch a suspect with. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's technically called a stun gun. Um, and they had unbelievable success selling that because they could sell it for 10 cents on the dollar Um, but yeah, so there were, there were a bunch of competing companies that were trying to take advantage of this market and to sell into police forces. Um, and it, it took, you know, 30 years for, for one company to essentially develop a monopoly on
0: it. And and one of the interesting things about it is, is the focus, as you described, you know, the idea behind this was that the taser was supposed to be a non-lethal weapon, right? And, you know, you have the story in there. And again, there's all sorts of really good stories in the book. I'm not giving them all away in the podcast. You should go read the book um, about how Taser International realized that the early version of their de- device would not really stop uh, a determined attacker. And therefore, they just amped up the the power of the device by uh, orders of magnitude, basically. And, and nobody ever really checked to see whether or not the... Uh, damage that that would cause would turn it from a non-lethal weapon into potentially a lethal weapon?
1: I mean, it was was so haphazard the way that they went about it. And it was really just this one guy, Jack Cover, who was trying to figure it out. And he developed the initial designs for the taser based on a study from the 1930s about how much electricity you could pump through an electric fence and not kill somebody. Um, And so he was just guessing. That that I mean, what you're referring to, there was the first big sale that Jack Cover had for his company um, was to the Los Angeles Police Department, and it was in the wake of uh, the killing of this woman named Yula Love in 1979. Um, so Yula Love was in a dispute over uh, over an unpaid bill uh, with bill collectors who were outside her home. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, they decided to call. Uh, The cops, because they were in this dispute with her, she runs in the house and pulls out a knife and the police arrive. And within two minutes of them showing up, they they decide that they're going to kill her. And they do. Um, And there are protests uh, that result from this interaction. um, And as has happened over and over and over again, you have a police killing uh, and people in government decide that the way that they're going to solve the problem is they're going to spend money. Um, so Jack Cover shows up with a supposedly non-lethal device and says, hey, you can, you can invest in this and then police will have this non-lethal weapon that they can turn to instead of guns. Um, and so the, you know, the Los Angeles Police Commission makes the decision that this is a good idea and the police department buys these devices. Um, and when they're tested on the street, uh, as you point out, the officers determine that the tasers aren't really all that effective. And so the person who led that purchase, um, his name is Greg Meyer. He's still around, actually, and in Los Angeles. Um, he said he went back to Jack Cover and said, hey, these don't really work. <laughs> can you can you help me out? And Jack went back to his garage and said, yeah, well, why don't you come back in two weeks? And that's what he did. He just ramped up the power. He, he guessed that if he turned up the power a little bit, um, they might be more effective. And it turned out that they were, that when Greg Meyer gave those – uh, prototype tasers back to his commanders, or I guess there were sergeants in different precincts in Los Angeles. Um, they turned out to be more effective, and so the more powerful version ended up being the one that made it onto the streets.
0: Yeah, and part of it is then you know the the various companies really tried to stick to this idea that they were non-lethal, uh, even as there were examples of. You know, people going into cardiac arrest after being hit by a taser. Um, you know what what happened with the companies in terms of really, you know, I guess leaning into the idea that they they had to be non lethal, even if the evidence showed otherwise.
1: It was really one company in particular that decided that the way that they would be able to sell these devices is if, is if they would. Uh, you know, adhere to this non-lethal talking point. Jack Cover, uh, as early as 1975, was uh, making statements that were hedging a bit. Um, he wouldn't say that they were non-lethal. He would say that you can't say that any weapon is going to be completely non-lethal, especially to people who have heart ailments, which is, you know, accurate. If you shoot somebody in the chest and they have a heart ailment, uh, or they're in a, a compromised position, or they're on drugs. Uh, I mean, they're going to run the risk of, of going into cardiac arrest, and dying. I mean, so Jack Cover was saying that. Um, but uh, when the Smiths really started pushing the device and brought their company public and started having to have conversations with shareholders, the selling point of the device was that it was non-lethal. It was that? It was a, an alternative to firearms that would give police the ability to disarm people and uh, disengage uh, circumstances uh, with a device that was non-lethal. Um, and they realized that if they, they backed away from that, then their sales numbers would, would decline. Um, and so they stuck with it and fought in court for years and years and years until they were forced First, there was uh, SEC action that pushed them in the direction of making that admission. And then finally, there was uh, there were numerous court decisions that put them in a position of not being able to deny it any further. And so finally, in, in 2009, they made that decision that they were going to uh, admit it <laughs> and go forward. And, and really, that company hasn't paid much, um, much of a price for making that admission and trying to cover up the idea that this was a, a lethal weapon uh, being disguised as a non-lethal weapon for a long time
2: wasn't uh part of that that they came up with their own medical condition to uh hand out to PDs who had accidentally tased someone to death so they give them the you know the new diagnosis that seemed to have sprung up at the same time as taser use went up
1: um yes that condition, um, remind me.
2: I'm sorry, yeah. That just the excited delirium has sprung up.
1: Um, I don't know that they made up excited delirium. Excited delirium was a phrase that had been used in policing for a long time. It had been hey. associated with PCP use. Um, but uh, they certainly latched onto it. And used it as a way to explain away uh, taser-related deaths, certainly.
2: Right, and I I think they must know your book is coming out because I noticed just last night at Police One they, uh, hit, they posted a thing defending excited delirium syndrome on uh, the policeone.com's website. It's trying to, like, dispel myths, and it's not until you scroll all the way to the bottom that you figure out that it's written by Mark Kroll, and Jeffrey Ho, two guys that work with Axon, and then a third one is uh, um, a jailhouse doctor, <clears throat> all defending it. So it seemed kind of oddly timed that it would have just showed up last night.
1: I hadn't seen that piece, but I was, I was actually scrolling through LinkedIn today, and I saw Rick Smith has a post up about how technology can uh, lead to the end of premeditated killing. <laughs> um, and so he's really he's really leaning into the idea that uh, technology can prevent deaths, well, which is kind of kind of the point of my book is that it can't.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's that's worth talking about, right? I mean, so the idea behind this originally is that if you have this supposedly non-lethal weapon, that it's going to change things and lead to less killing and everything like that. Has that? been borne out by any evidence over the last few decades while tasers have become more popular? Uh, No.
1: Um, Part of what complicates that is that there aren't any government agencies that track taser use uh, or track the number of deaths that are connected to taser use. Um, And so there was a study that was released uh, last year. Uh, It was done by the University of Chicago. um, And it was was a seven-year study of taser use by the Chicago Police Department, something like 35,000 police incidents um, or police interactions uh, in which tasers were used. Um, And it found that taser use did not decrease the number of firearms that were used on the street whatsoever. Um, And then when you think uh, of that statistic, uh, along with the idea that the people who try to count the number of Deaths that are connected to tasers now put the number at over a thousand. Uh, you can say that uh, you know the weapons are not non-lethal weapons. They've been connected to to many deaths over the years, uh, and that the the one major statistically significant study. Looking at police interactions seems to show that they do not reduce uh, the uh, number of times that firearms are used in police interactions. Um, And so on a whole, it seems that they've failed in their main goals.
0: And does anyone seem to care about that? I mean, besides us?
1: (laughs) Uh, Nobody who actually spends money on these things seems to care. (laughs) And
0: It it does seem. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I didn't have anything right at the moment. Go ahead here. No, I'll I'll jump back in.
1: I think that there's a reason for it. I I, I spell this out in in the book. But when when Greg Meyer and and the uh, people in purchasing decisions at the Los Angeles Police Department made the decision that they wanted to get tasers, you know, they were they were being pressured because of the Eula Love situation and because there was public outcry related to the use of deadly force by police officers. But. Uh, the officers in the LAPD were not concerned about that. What they were concerned about was PCP. Um, And I, I I do some, you know, I had, I had many long conversations with Craig Meyer uh, over the course of, of reporting out this book. And he was explicit about it during that time period. um, PCP was very popular. um, And, you know, there, the way that, PCP acts on humans, um, is that, you know, if you take too much of it, it, uh, makes you hallucinate and also makes you overheat. Um, and since you're hallucinating kind of out of your mind and overheating, you strip down naked. And so police were being called to circumstances where there's somebody walking around naked on the street and that person isn't necessarily lethal, but they need to be handcuffed or taken off the, off the street and, you know, They need to be uh, controlled in some way. And so police officers are looking at a circumstance where they can either wrestle this large naked person to the ground who's (laughs) sweating uh, or they can use a firearm. And, you know, police officers didn't want to use firearms in those circumstances and also didn't want to tie up with a sweaty, naked person. And so a a taser (laughs) offered an alternative to that. That was their reason for doing it. And I think that officers believe that tasers... Have a role in circumstances like that, um, and that is a that is an intermediate kind of uh, a de-escalation circumstance, right? That is a kind of circumstance where yeah, a taser is probably a, a good choice for something to use if it's used in the right way. If you don't shoot the taser at somebody's chest, um, and there really is no other alternative, um, and I think po- police officers realize that, and they realize that that kind of circumstance can happen, and so they want it on their belt. Um, and that's the reason why the investment is made. It really has nothing to do with getting firearms off the street or reducing the number of shootings.
2: But I still see it in practice, though, that uh, I mean, I'm sure it's not in every case, but there's been enough cases where it's just used as, you know, basically called like a tool of torture where they have they've got somebody already submissive. They're going to go ahead and drive stun them. They're going to jam it into their crotch. Or they're going to do whatever. Just because they have it, there's something to inflict pain, which is a really weird way to take a tool that handles one problem. But I guess, you know, if it's the same thing they might have done with a baton previously, but now you've got 26 watts of power.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, you've got this, this device that's designed for... Ultra specific circumstances. Like I can't think of many other than somebody high on PCP who's neck naked and sweaty, where you would actually use it. But <laughs> in training, in training, very early on um, with Taser International, and I go into quite a bit of detail about the training regimens and how uh, Taser International was directly involved in, in uh, training police. But so in those training sessions, they would just say, "Use your Taser all the time, whatever the circumstance." if you think that you can make use of the taser, use it because the taser is non-lethal and it's safe and you don't have to worry about it. Taser early and often was a phrase that was used quite a bit in those training sessions. And so for years and years, uh, police officers were making that decision. If they have a circumstance where somebody's being an asshole or somebody's generally not following directions, then they would use the taser or if they just want somebody to comply, then they would use the taser too. Um, But that is, not how a lethal weapon should be used.
2: Yeah. And I noticed, uh, I mean, there's so many good details in this book that I wasn't familiar with on the development of Taser and just the testing methods that they used have just blew me away, as well as the defenses they'd hand out. And and like Mike, I don't want to give everything away because people definitely should read this book. But I I was I was kind of stunned that they had the the same mindset as the people they're selling to, sort of when they would being questioned about how out of the, like the, the Eula love situation and, and things like this, where a taser head resulted in death that they were basically like, whatever, it's just happening to criminals. Why do we need to be concerned about this? Which is uh, a really bad take, especially once it gets out publicly.
1: It is a really bad take. Um, have you been following any of the, uh, The uh, stories that have bubbled up recently about uh, opioid use and uh, how opioids have have spread and the information that opioid makers had early, early on.
2: That I haven't paid really close attention to. I'm kind of gauging more from the law enforcement side, like the DA and everybody else is pushing down on it to see how that's going to go.
1: Oh, but it's, it's the same pushback. You know, is the it? companies that were involved then were saying, "Like, well, we don't really need to worry about the overdose deaths because the people who are abusing opioids are bad people," and, <laughs> and that is uh, that is a lot of the pushback that, that you had with with tasers too. That wow. is spectacular. Yeah, it's horrific uh, and awful.
2: Yeah. Yes. So, I, you know, I was using it in the pejorative sense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's using it in the journalistic sense, where something right. that, that is horrible that happens that is a great story. You're like, man, that's a yeah. great story, but it's right. actually that's disgusting and terrible.
0: <laughs> so let let's move on a little bit, uh, but we'll stick with the, the company Taser. I think because you know one of the things that more recently has been a big deal is the idea of you know body cameras uh, and concern that like you know body cameras could be this. You know, amazing solution to problems with interactions that police are having. Um, and Taser, in fact, jumped, you know, full on into that space as well. And a lot of body cameras are now pro- provided by by Taser. So you want to talk about the body camera space? Sure. Sure.
1: Um... If we're if we're keeping the discussion to Taser International,
0: it doesn't have to just be Taser, but uh, it was a segue. <laughs> they
1: they are really good at cornering cornering a market and and branding themselves as, yeah. as the leader. And there are a number of body camera makers that are in the space right now, but yeah, you know, Ac- I mean Taser International changed its name to Axon Enterprise in part because it wanted to uh, become more associated with body cameras and with data collection uh, than with than with tasers but it's it's uh it's fine to focus on them because they are they are at the forefront of the industry right now. Um so yeah body cameras are a really interesting story. The um one of the people at the forefront of that industry was a guy named Steve Ward who is a uh, uh an officer with the Seattle Police Department um who came up with the idea that you know we've got dash cameras Uh, At some point, cameras are going to get small enough where they can be worn by police officers. And I'm going to try to get into that business as soon as I possibly can. Um, Sort of connected to his entrepreneurial ambitions, he decides in, I guess he was a taser uh, trainer. So he was doing uh, police instructions for Seattle, for uh, uh, municipalities that uh, were near Seattle Um, So he was working closely with Taser in 2006. He decides that he's going to go take a full time job with Taser International in a sales position. Um, And when he went there, uh, Taser was in the midst of a bunch of controversy over its use of over, you know, Taser involvement in deaths. And uh, Taser was working to place cameras on the on the butt of its Taser weapons so that when Uh, police officers engaged the taser and were involved in a police interaction um, there would be a video recording of it Um, it was called taser cam this was yeah 2006 2007 Uh, steve ward was involved in uh, that process uh, and (laughs) there was a lawsuit about this rather than uh, taking the next step and trying to develop body cameras along with that program with the taser cam program, he went off and started his own company called V view. Uh, And after he started the company, I believe I'm getting the timeline timeline here, right? He quits his job and, you know, makes an announcement (laughs) that he's got this new company called view Um, and, you know, gets sued by, by taser and it becomes a a civil court issue. Um, But for a while, there were these two companies that were both, uh, you know, gunning right at this industry that they saw as evolving um, into, you know, a major market and they were selling to police departments here and there, not too many. Um, and then by the time, you know, Ferguson happens, Mike Brown gets killed by Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri. And one of the first questions that many people observing that circumstance, uh, asked was where was the body camera? Why wasn't, uh, Darren Wilson outfitted with a body camera and why don't we have video of this incident? Uh, And then all of a sudden, it spreads like wildfire. The idea spreads like wildfire that you have these companies that are producing body cameras and that police officers might be able to record these kinds of circumstances and that if uh, municipalities, jurisdictions uh, decide that they're going to make these camera, uh, the the footage uh, public, then there would be a lot fewer questions related to the deaths of people like like Mike Brown. Um, and the industry has just gone crazy since then. Um, you guys followed it uh, after afterwards that, um, you know, there were tens of millions of dollars that were made available in federal block grants to uh, supply body cameras to police departments all over the country. Um, And it has become an investment that most police departments have made. And so just like the taser spread to um, basically all of the 18,000 police departments in the United States, body cameras are on their way to doing the same thing now.
2: Yeah. What I've seen though is that very disappointing is that there's plenty of supply and there's plenty of demand, but so far we're not really experiencing much in terms of benefits from it. There are too many, uh, you know, Incidents where everybody's wearing one, but somehow nobody has any footage when there's a need for it. And so it's great that, that this has exploded, this potential for transparency and accountability, but they've they've managed to stifle it right on the street level so that it's there's tens of millions of dollars being spent. But for the public, the benefit is, is what? More footage available for prosecutors, basically, is how it's worked out.
1: Yeah, um, so that has been a concerted effort. Right after Ferguson, uh, you guys are familiar with uh, the group called the Police Executive Research Forum. Mm -hmm. Um, It is one of the more prominent groups of police leaders. Uh, They came out with uh, with a report slash executive statement that said, we believe in body cameras, basically. And part of the reason why we believe in body cameras is that we believe that they will uh, make interactions between communities and police departments better. And because of that, and because we believe in that interaction between communities and police departments, you should make the footage public. All of these police departments, if people ask to have the footage, they should be given the footage. Um, and a lot of the initial ramp up of police body cameras was built around that. You know, people, Voted to have these expenditures happen in local governments because they thought that that was the reason why these body cameras were being instituted. Um, but then, as uh, police departments and prosecutors, police leaders started realizing that that meant that every interaction was going to be was going to be videotaped, and that uh, there was the possibility that all sorts of interactions were going to be made public that they might prefer not be made public, um, they started working hard to make sure that body camera footage was not considered, uh, you know, a public record, but instead was considered, uh, evidence in a case. Um, I live in Pennsylvania. I'm, I, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and live here. Uh, and there was a law passed last year or two years ago, um, that explicitly, uh, not only made body camera footage, uh, uh evidence but also took it out of the realm of a public record that could be requested through the state's right to know law. Um, so it is it is basically impossible to get body camera footage unless a police department decides out of the goodness of their heart to make it public. And typically that only happens when the footage shows the officer to be in the right, uh, or there is so much overwhelming public uh, outcry calling for a particular piece of body camera footage that the uh, department is forced to release it and on the latter I can't think of any off the top of my head where that's actually happened. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet.
2: Yeah so that's that's been one of the things that we've been covering a lot of now that I have and it's and I don't I don't know what uh, the this, this solution is they've got uh, it seems like a lot more power especially with the unions to be able to change legislation to favorably. I know there's been pushback and there's like good things happening out in California and a couple of other States that are starting to free some of this up. But I I do, I do remember reading, uh, and I'm I'm sure you've covered in there is that with that, that uh, camera they put on the taser, I know you said originally had that 2008, 2009, I think it was fairly recently, that they had built one that would trigger when the weapon was fired? Is that the same thing, or is that...
1: Yeah, it's the same thing. It was a little earlier than that. Oh, okay. The, the SEC investigated Taser International, and part of the reason why they were investigating them in 2005 and through 2007, I think, um, was that they had made these claims that the weapons were non-lethal, um, and as a way to show that they were non-lethal, as a way to kind of interact with uh, the investigation as it was happening, they decided that they were going to put these cameras on the weapons. And when the trigger engaged, uh, was, was pressed, um, it would start filming. So that was, that was a product called Taser Cam that was uh, among the, the more famous uh, purchasers of that uh, device was uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Mm. um bought a a small shitload of them uh but the i mean they were expensive it was it was it was kind of a gamble and i think internally at taser international they, they knew that it was it was not necessarily going to be something that worked it made the taser very bulky um but they saw that as cameras became smaller and they were able to put uh a cameras into more circumstances that they were going to be able to take advantage of them. And, you know, that's when they came out with the Axon flex.
2: And also speaking of Axon, the other thing that they've been getting into is as you, as you mentioned is the um, data side of it um, where they're able to control the footage and, and keep hold of it. And I'd noticed that. Uh, I, I think it was a couple of years ago that, That that where this is running into problems, another accountability thing or just a transparency thing is that like defense lawyers looking to get a hold of this footage are being asked to turn over like a ton of information to Axon before they even granted like a pass to look at that. And that's another area where they're kind of nailed down and, and have taken over that corner of the market. And now we're funneling part of the criminal justice basically through a private contractor for, for evidence.
1: Yeah. And for public records requests, right? So for, for a while, um, and I haven't, I haven't followed this too closely recently. I haven't seen where it's gone, but, um, if you made public records requests for body camera footage, one of the, one of the big questions was, uh, whether or not that body camera footage would identify people specifically. And so uh, Axon started uh, inst- uh, using facial recognition technology to go through and uh, redact video of any faces that were disconnected from, or yeah, that were disconnected from the incident that was actually being requested, um, which, raised a whole bunch of fascinating questions about, um, not only what you described there, which is that, you know, part of the criminal justice process is being put through the hands of a publicly traded international company. Um, but also the idea that, uh, Axon was going to use facial recognition technology to do this work. Um, what? How is that going to be implemented further? To Axon's credit, uh, they've said recently that uh, they don't intend to use facial recognition. They don't think that facial recognition is is ready for rollout. rollout. Um, and uh, you know, good on them because it doesn't seem from what I've read that it is. Yeah, yeah
0: that I is think... good.
2: They they did make that point uh, at, at a post that I had written. They actually contacted me directly to argue about the impression I gave them that they were going to be throwing facial recognition into their body cams um like well you know i didn't actually say that you were i said that you were discussing it not that that was what was coming up but i in in terms of what we've seen from facial recognition yeah it's definitely good that they're that they're holding back nobody else seems to be interested interested in doing that
1: but you guys follow that pretty closely where do you see that particular part of technology rolling out um, i mean from what i've seen it's really it's really failed in every major test that uh, yep. uh, that's tried to be yeah. used well,
2: well what i see it is that we'll continue to roll out and eventually the technology will catch up to where it's already out there you know they've set standards and like dhs cbp and all these different agencies say they have a standard but they've rolled it all out ahead of it meeting that standard as if you know, it'll be okay once it gets there. However long it takes to get there, and I don't see like on local police levels this being something that comes out as not as big as it is in the UK. But I think it's it's inevitable.
1: You've seen it. You've uh, seen it used in the UK in any uh, 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 significant way. Facial recognition.
2: They've been rolling trials out at like music festivals and and big gatherings. Where they've set it up on like uh just stationary cameras. I don't know how much is like right on body cameras, but they've been able to build up like databases with that and
0: but the question prior. is has has it actually been successful in catching say a criminal,
2: yeah or identifying yeah. There hasn't been a lot of that, no.
0: <laughs> See, that's the big issue, right? I mean, there have been all these talks and tests of facial recognition technology and, and people talk it up about how it's going to be wonderful and they're going to spot a criminal, you know, in a crowd. And yet there's, as far as I know, no examples of that ever actually working. No, I can't. Go ahead.
1: There was a case in Chicago that CPD bragged about a few years back. But when you when you dug into the case, which I did for The Verge, It it was evident that the person who they said was identified through facial recognition technology was so overtly out in the public and doing things that were overtly going (laughs) to get him arrested that uh, giving facial recognition the credit just seemed ludicrous. And when you actually pressed the CPD spokesman on it, he was he was noncommittal at best.
2: Right. Like he had 11 different identifying tattoos on his face or something. It's just a <laughs> normal person.
1: He he was on a train, as I recall, uh, like a, a Metro train in Chicago, um, or in the loop and like stealing people's phones and, you know, who were <laughs> actively reporting him while he right. was committing crimes. And so like saying that the cameras that were on the, on the train were responsible for his arrest were, was, was ludicrous.
2: Yeah, because it's, it's the false positives and the false negatives. The false positives obviously get more attention because it's your spectacular failure rate where they've run a test on 10,000 faces and, and you know rang up 35, 40 of them. But then with your the other hand is you're just missing the people. The systems are being sold to us is why we need them. Those people are going completely unnoticed as if their face wasn't out in public at all. So that's I'm not seeing the benefit there.
1: Well, they seem, uh, I think this gets to what you were talking about. I, I, it seems like they're rolling them out in airports, um, yeah. which is a little bit outside of what I'm what I'm focused on. But I'm I'm very curious what the results of those rollouts are going to be and what they're expecting to get from those uh, facial recognition uh, tests.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just it's supposed to ease the process of enhanced screening. I guess to take away the judgment calls they make. So somebody's face doesn't ring up right away. They're going to stick them in the other line. And
1: right. So do a better search. Huh. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Cause they sell it right now. CBP and DHS pitch it as like, Oh, this is a convenience for travelers. You won't have to get pulled in enhanced screening as long as your face comes through
0: fine. And I don't, and if it, if it doesn't, you will get strip search still, <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it'll be interesting. It is one of these things where again, I mean, all of these technologies are you know, there's a a story and an explanation that goes around that explains why they want to use them that you know, on its face makes sense. It's just when you begin to actually understand how the technology works or doesn't work and then also the unintended consequences of how it how it actually gets used and and then you know what's done after it. I mean, in the, in the case of body cameras, you know, in general, the idea of more transparency is a good thing. And, and I think when body cameras first started becoming popular, we were actually kind of hopeful that that would, that would lead to better interactions. But then it sort of got captured and turned into, you know, everything that we were talking about. And so each of these cases, you know, there are these stories that, that make sense. You know, you want to do this in order to, to create a better policing situation. And then the reality turns out to be totally different.
1: I was really hopeful when body cameras started to be rolled out. Um, I, had, I had just started a job uh, as a staff writer with The Verge around the time, and they, they sent me out to Scottsdale to do a piece on body cameras. And this was like 2013. And uh, the Taser Flack put me in touch with the local uh, chapter of the ACLU uh, in, in Phoenix. Um, and the executive director who I spoke with there, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, But she was very, uh, she was very supportive of the idea, Um, and like me, it seemed like it was a it was a boon for transparency. But but the way that we looked at the circumstances and and the potential rollout was so naive. In retrospect, we we thought that uh, uh, police departments and police leaders were going to make the footage public because it should be public, right? And that was silly. (laughs) <laughs> that was just not how that that was obviously not how things were going to happen that was not in in connection with reality and and the reality is that um uh, you mentioned unions uh district attorneys associations um they they were not going to let that footage become public as easily as they were suggesting that they might um and uh, it has really turned it into a uh a, um, a boondoggle, and not something that can uh, help transparency in the way that it had the potential to do.
0: Yeah,
2: I suppose probably should have seen the way that was coming. Like I believe they were going to be a better outcome from this, but considering how they've treated citizens with their own cameras filming interactions over the years, right up until multiple court decisions finally made them back off, should have probably. Been a heads up on how this was going to go when they had their own cameras.
0: I talk about
1: this in the book. It's that most of these technologies do come out with um, a a well-meaning idea in mind, um,
0: yeah.
1: and with some smart thinking behind it. Like Jack Cover is no idiot, and he was thinking about a non-lethal weapon because there were Calls for non-lethal weapons on a national level. I mean, there was a presidential commission in 1967 that put out a huge report, and one of the one of the elements of that report was that a non-lethal weapon needed to be created uh, to de-escalate circumstances um, between uh, or interactions between police officers and people on the street. And so, so the idea was a good one. And same thing goes with body cameras. I think the idea is is noble and true um, and good. Uh, but yeah, it's it's in the rollout and it's in um, how, uh, the idea can be polluted for all sorts of different reasons. And one of the main ones tends to be uh, making money. Um, and
0: well, I, I, I mean, one of the other examples in the book, which, you know, I've, I've read a lot about in other circumstances as well, where you have a good idea and an interesting implementation that, that just gets dragged down by, I don't know if I would call them unintended consequences, but but consequences is something like Comstat, right? Where the, this is the well. Why don't you explain the the basics of what Comstat is and how it came about? The basics of
1: Comstat. I mean, it's a it's a great idea and a yeah. very simply good idea, right? You've got um, the ability to track where crimes are happening and what kinds of crimes are happening, and so uh, you know Jack Maple in the nypd and bill bratton back when he was with the boston police department uh they started you know plotting out on maps like wall-sized maps uh where crimes were happening and they would use different colored dots or pins to identify where specific crimes were happening so that they could do better policing um and in order to make sure that each precinct was reporting in the right way when they started working together uh, in the early 1990s, Maple and Bratton instituted this program where they would all get together in, in weekly meetings with all of their precinct commanders and talk about what the map showed and how the precinct commanders were going to deploy their officers to, to best go after the crimes that they needed to be going after in each one of those precincts. And so it was, it was this very holistic approach to, uh, crime and deploying officers that it was a great idea and it worked. Um, but what, what happened over the years afterwards is that people stopped thinking about it as a holistic approach to policing. And they started thinking about it as the technology that could be sold, the technology that would, you know, help a police department map crimes if they didn't have the, the, the people to do it. Um, and it took out this, uh, communicative Uh, the part of the process where everybody would talk through what the best solutions were uh, to respond to the crimes themselves. And that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's an interesting example of the way that uh, a good idea can uh, uh, devolve into just a piece of technology that can be bought and sold and how that tends to pollute an idea pretty significantly.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, part of the issue with Comstat was once you had this sort of data, everyone always tries to sort of focus on optimizing for the data right and that led to all this pressure uh to to basically juice the stats in one direction or another rather than actually focusing on stopping crime it was you know making it look like crime had stopped yeah so it's it you know all, all these issues with what seems like a good idea and what it probably is a good idea when you get to the actual implementation, it it, it doesn't lead to actual better policing or or better communities. It, it creates these all these other impacts.
1: And that's the big question. It's you know how do you how do you maintain these good ideas, uh, and not let them get diluted in the way that they tend to get diluted. I guess that's a yeah. that's a much bigger question than I'm able to.
0: solve yeah the um the one last technology i wanted to discuss really quickly before we close out the podcast um that you talk about in the book as well is the cell site uh simulators which you know was a slightly different idea and also was kept really secret as opposed to some of these other technologies in in the earlier days um and that Created some other issues as, as well. So, you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Uh, let's talk. I mean, we could talk about the, the secrecy that's
0: involved. Yeah, sure.
1: Um, uh, you guys are probably better uh, equipped to talk about cell site simulators. You guys talk about that quite a bit on the site.
0: Yeah. I, and I mean, so how that's... do you
1: understand the technology itself? I'm sorry? How do you understand the technology itself?
0: Uh, in terms of describing what the technology does? Yeah. Sure. So, uh, well, Tim could answer this too, but sure. It, actually, why don't you do it? You write about more than okay. I do. Okay,
2: all right. Um, basically, see, you drive around. They're trying to locate someone. They can flip it on, and it basically acts as a cell tower. Everything in the area routes to it, and then it could try to pin down where this cell phone is, whatever the target is.
0: Um, yeah, it, it's effectively a man in the middle attack. Uh, to 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 have your the you know the cell phone that you're looking for connect to it, and then use that to. To, to try and locate the person.
1: Yeah, and so what has been, what was remarkable to me as I, as I looked into it was how early cell site simulators were used. I mean, it goes back to the 90s, but the, yeah. the first time that the there was actual public information indicating that a law enforcement agency had used one, I mean, the first reference I could see is like 2011. And it relates back to <laughs> to use uh, back in two thousand five, two thousand six, and so it's it's already very old, um, but it took so long because the Harris Corporation had written into their contracts that uh, police agencies were not allowed to talk about their use of cell site simulators.
0: Yeah, even in court, even in court.
1: It's just amazing that that was that that was able to be done, and that you had these law enforcement agencies that were spending exorbitant amounts of money on these tools, uh, and just, like nobody was allowed to hear it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole other story behind that where like you know how it came, how it finally came out, where you had a guy who was in jail who insisted that there must have been this technology because he had taken all these steps to be careful in hiding his, the fact that he, he was you know, doing a big scam. Uh, and he said the only way he could have been discovered is if this technology existed. And everyone, you know, thought he was sort of a tinfoil hat wearing, you know, uh, you know, criminal. Uh, and yet he was right. And there was,
1: and a, a, there was another case out in, out in Tucson, uh, a reporter by the name of Bo Hodai. I, I haven't kept up with him, um, but he was working with the ACLU to reveal uh, uh, use of cell site simulators in, in, uh, in Tucson in the Tucson area. Um, in similar kind of situation, like the, uh, they had been using them for years and years and it wasn't until much later and many appeals that, uh, the local police department finally had to make an admission that they had been using them.
0: Yeah. And
2: yeah, it's well, kicked in a whole courtroom cottage industry of parallel construction for so many years of how do you Explain how you got locate those persons And if you're not going to admit you've got the tech, <clears throat> I mean, yeah. cases have
1: been thrown out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody just don't want to talk about it.
2: Yeah. Prosecutors have dropped them
1: and just said no.
0: Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, this is this is it's a really interesting topic. And and certainly, you know, a tech, to, we're. You know, we believe in technology and innovation and the power of technology and innovation. But, you know, I, I think in the policing context, it's really interesting how much it keeps getting twisted. And, you know, I think the point that you make in this book is that it's, it's really often being used as a way to avoid a, a real discussion and a real look at, at deeper, more systematic problems uh, within law enforcement. So I think, you know, the book is a really interesting one to read. Again, uh for listeners, it's called The Thin Blue Lie, uh the Failure of High Tech Policing. Uh and uh Matt Stroud, uh thanks for joining us on the podcast and discussing it and writing the book. It was very interesting stuff. Thanks
1: for having it, uh having me on and, and thanks for reading the book. Uh and keep doing the the work that you're doing. I love the website and love following you guys.
0: Cool. Thanks. And Tim, thanks for joining us as well. And uh, everyone who's listening, thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll be back next week. Thanks. If we don't up to them, someone will get to grab a shovel and the